Well, before I became a Christian, I was fascinated by the fact that even non-Christians are fans of Christ. It's one of the reasons that during my seeking years, I returned to examine Christianity when by all rights, I should have left it on the garbage heap for good. At the time, Jesus was being represented by the likes of Jim and Tammy Faye Baker, uh, sex scandals and thievery, uh, Jimmy Swaggart, more sex and debauchery, uh, Peter Popov, a complete scam artist, if you recall, and the list goes on. The church, in other words, was in no way attractive to me whatsoever. But there was this Jesus guy. The Hindus loved him. The Muslims revered him. Christians, who ironically uh, are taking his name while largely ignoring his teaching, still clung to him. Pagans and New Agers embraced his mystical credentials, and even atheists recognized his singular moral teaching. There was no denying the central figure of the Christian faith had something going on. But who was he really? Well, having been raised by an ex-Catholic and a grumpy conservative agnostic, my first impressions of Jesus were what I'll call the all-American, all-business Christmas-time Jesus. He was white, well, mostly white, probably a Republican who was the reason we have Christmas. He was all business, all about morals and sensibility. He did not have a sense of humor, and he certainly did not approve of that music, young man. But all this just deepened the mystery for me. Why would nearly everyone in the world want this guy on their team? I mean, sure, maybe you'd want him to do your taxes, but anything other than that would be a drag. I mean, it's like kissing your sister, like getting fourth place at the Olympics, like being born in Canada. <laughs> That's for you, Tyson. So there must be something about this Jesus character that I was missing. But something still powerful enough to reach through bigotry and ignorance to grab the attention of the whole world for 2,000 years and running. And there's a lot at stake when it comes to understanding who Jesus is. There's a lot riding on it. Listen to this passage from John chapter 14, verses 8 through 10. Philip said, Master, Show us the Father, then we'll be content. You've been with me all this time, Philip, and you still don't understand? To see me is to see the Father. That's the message translation. And in case you think that maybe there's some subtlety in the language and translation, let me just share a couple of other translations of verse 10 with you to drive this point home. He who has seen me has seen the Father. Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. If you have seen me, you have seen the Father. Anyone who has seen me has seen the Father. If you have seen me, you have seen the Father. <laughs> There's really no ambiguity here of what Jesus said. The writer of Hebrews drives the point home even further. Chapter 1, verse 3. The Son is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of His being. So, let's just make sure we grasp the implications here. Anything you are capable of understanding about God, you can understand by looking at Jesus. Let me say that again. Anything you are capable of understanding about God, 
you can understand by looking at Jesus. If you're looking at Jesus, you're looking at God. If you want to know what God is like, look at Jesus. Now see, I don't think we always fully get this. You can think anything you want to about Jesus, but whoever he was, he said that he's the same as God. So Jesus is saying that your view of him is also your view of God. So with that in mind, let's go back to the 1989 Dan Hazen and recall his view of Jesus, which means that it was also my view of God, a grumpy, white Republican businessman who mostly disapproved of me. Nailed it. That's who I thought God was. That's what I thought about God because that's what I thought about Jesus. God was not for me. He tolerated me. God was sort of an eternally annoyed grandpa who, who at best put up with me and at worst was angry. He, he worked and worked and slaved and what thanks did he get? That was kind of what I heard from him. I had to keep my unholiest thoughts hidden. I certainly couldn't be honest with him about my fears and weaknesses. There was no hope that he would ever find the things funny that I found funny. Who would ever choose to submit to that God? Never mind buying to the myth that he loved me. But here's where it got interesting. I don't recall how the thought first found its way into my mind. I honestly don't know whether it ever fully formed. But looking back on it, somehow, somewhere, the question sort of bloomed. What if I'm wrong about Jesus? What if the picture I had adopted was based on faulty data? Lies, misperceptions, and my own laziness. What if I had just bought into a view of Jesus that I was fed by people who didn't really know him either? It's sort of like, you know, in junior high school when the new kid shows up in class and two or three of the insecure kids start a rumor that he's brain damaged or has a weird disease. And rather than finding out for yourself, you just assume that about him too rather than getting to know him yourself. Church, I'm talking to you now. It's possible that your relationship with God is stuck, broken, or twisted up because you've bought into the rumors you've been told about Jesus. George MacDonald, the old Scottish prophet, says this, How have we learned Christ? It ought to be a startling thought that we have learned Him wrong. And seeker, I'm talking to you now. Will you let Jesus speak for Himself over the next few weeks? There are a lot of rumors and lies about Him. But let's just open the Bible and let Him speak. If we do, at the end of this series, you can look back on what you've discovered, what you've discovered, and apply that to what you know about God. And that, I predict, will be an amazing day. Now, the title of the series in each of the succeeding weeks probably gives it away. We're going to dismantle the inaccurate views of Jesus as killjoy, Jesus as a jerk, Jesus as wimp. And these are three aspects of his character that to some extent have snuck into our collective view of him. These characteristics have become a sort of orthodoxy and accepted as fact. Well, just like the outlaw characters from Western films, the real Jesus doesn't tolerate the status quo. He doesn't conform to the behavioral norms of the authorities. He doesn't compromise the truth or his honor because of what other people will think of him. He's an outlaw. 
And here's the part that might really bake your noodle. He doesn't conform to your ideas of who you think he is either. He certainly hasn't conformed to mine. You see, even the most progressive and free-thinking among us are still legalists. And if there's one thing, outlaws don't countenance, it's the law. And each of us have certain rules, laws we think should apply to Jesus. We've made Jesus in our own image. Jesus only forgives certain kinds of sins. That's what some of us think. And some of us might say, well, if it's the kind of tolerance I tolerate, then Jesus tolerates it too. Some might say, Jesus always stands for truth. Well, except when standing for the truth would cost me everything, then he doesn't mind. Well, I could go on and on, but the point is humans are rule makers. We're all lawyers. From the moment a playmate takes a toy away and we cry bloody murder to the moment we demand to see the manager because our latte is too cold, we all have rules. Laws that we expect the world to conform to and we expect Jesus to conform to. But Jesus rides into our little one-horse towns where we sit fat and happy like the overpaid and underworked sheriff, just trying to keep the peace at the expense of justice or meeting out justice at the expense of compassion. And he slides off his horse and saunters up to us and he kicks the chair out from under us and says, let me tell you about peace and justice and compassion. Well, that doesn't sound like Jesus. That's my point. The series title is based on a book by John Eldridge, and we'll be drawing from his material. But we'll speak to our misunderstandings of Jesus in deeper ways too. Like this, outlaw. Think of it this way. Outlaw in the sense that Jesus comes to fulfill and transcend religious law. Ushering in a new age for all mankind where grace is the way to intimacy with God, not legalism. And beauty, meaning this rebellion against the law is not carried out with violence and hatred, but with strength and with love, beautifully. So as we approach Easter, let's let Jesus out of the boxes we've built for him. And let's start with the box I had him in for a long time, the killjoy. Now, I can trace the origins of this view to my father, who, upon having read the Bible from cover to cover, the only time in his life he read it, just read it cover to cover, he closed it and declared to the family, well, it seems that there probably is a God, and if he's real, he's pissed. And he really doesn't want anything to do with us anymore because he set us up to succeed, but we screwed it all up, so he's left us to deal with the mess that we made. Not surprisingly, this, is the view, of, this view of God was a perfect mirror of my dad's values. He had superimposed himself onto Jesus. He found what he was looking to find. But was he right? Is Jesus really the dour, angry, humorless killjoy who tolerated his 33 years on earth and then bailed out disgusted and disappointed in us? You heard the answer already. There's the short answer. Well, let's let Jesus speak for himself from the Bible. And there are two stories from the Gospel of John. And if you got that U version or your, whatever, your old-fashioned paper Bible, you can get those out too. John chapter 2 
verses 1 through 10. If you have the U version, you can open the Allen Creek event and you can see there's additional content, a survey to take, and some other goodies there too. But we're in John chapter 2, verses 1 through 10. You can read along, hopefully, with the slides here too if you need. On the third day, a wedding took place at Cana in Galilee. Jesus' mother was there, and Jesus and his disciples had also been invited to the wedding. When the wine was gone, Jesus' mother said to him, They have no more wine. Woman, why do you involve me? Jesus replied, My hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, Do whatever he tells you. Nearby stood six water jars, stone water jars. Uh, that the Jews used for ceremonial washing, each holding from 20 to 30 gallons. Jesus said to the servants, fill the waters, the jars with water. So they filled them to the brim. Then he told them, now draw some out and take it to the master of the banquet. They did so, and the master of the banquet tasted the water that had been turned into wine. He did not realize where it had come from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew. Then he called the bridegroom aside and said, Everyone brings out the choice wine first and then the cheaper wine after the guests have had too much to drink, but you saved the best till now. All right, so this is hilarious. And let's break it down. Generally, when you have to explain a joke, it's not funny, but let's just suspend that for the moment. Let's break this down. First of all, we need to understand wedding context, okay? Now, we've got a wedding coming up in my family this week. And it's, yeah, and it's a big deal, right? If you've been through this before, it's been months and months and now the week of, it's on the calendar. Wedding week! Ah! There's stuff to do. This does not even remotely to co- compare to what's happening in first century Palestine. I am not kidding. There are parades for the wedding. Processionals, they have parades. The wedding lasts a week. And it's a banquet. It is a party. All the stops come out and everybody comes. It's a huge deal. Now, we know explicitly from this passage that Jesus, and we know from uh, the rest of the context, maybe five of his disciples have been invited guests. But we know also from his exchange with Mary that she's fulfilling a different role here. She's probably some kind of wedding coordinator there. Now, we've got Jamie and Jonna who are going to help us with our wedding, and they're the ones that something goes wrong, you go to them. They've got the headset and the clipboard, da-da-da-da, make it stick, da right? So Mary's in some kind of a role because how would she, first of all, know about this, and why would she give commands to the servants unless she was in a position to do so? So she's clearly a helper or a hostess of some kind. Now, running out of wine is a big deal. This would be the rough equivalent of somebody lost the bride's dress, there's no cake, and the pastor is in a ditch someplace. Like, (laughs) The the wedding's not going to happen without wine because, well, it's the key celebratory component to this, but also you're not drinking a whole lot. You're there for a week. You're not drinking water at this period of time. That's dangerous. You drink wine. So there's nothing to drink there. This is a big deal. So Mary knows this is serious. She also knows that Jesus can fix it. Now, we don't know how much she knows, but we do know this explicitly from Luke chapter 2. Who was the first person who was notified that Jesus is coming to earth as the Messiah? Her. She knows from the time she's pregnant that this guy's special, and she 
raises him, she knows something could happen. Now, exactly what she knows, we don't know at that point. We only speculate. But she, why would she go to him? Like, what, he's got a liquor license? Like, he knows he, he can drive to the liquor store? No, she knows that he can do something to fix this. But his response is fascinating. And people have stumbled over this for eons. His first word, every, every female in this room cringes when they hear that. And how do you hear it? Woman! Woman! That's not at all what he meant. That is not what he said. That word, when you translate it from Aramaic to Greek to English, there's not a direct English translation for it. It kind of fits somewhere in between the words woman, adult female, mom, mother, honored mother, and ma'am, sort of a thing. It is not disrespectful at all. In this context, it's actually honorific. It's like, ma'am, mama. In, in Aramaic, it may have been ama. There's a word for We know it wasn't that word because there's a specific word for that. So it's something more than mama or mommy, mother, and even more than that. So it's not disrespectful at all. So, so ma'am, my hour has not yet come. Now, why do I say it like that? Well, first of all, he means he's not going to do something really outing himself as the Messiah because there's three years of ministry. There. He knows the cross is coming. And this is not a, a time for him to reveal fully who he is. That's something that's got to emerge. So he's not going to do something amazing. But somehow he gives her a wink in there with what he says, you know, ma'am, my, my hour hasn't come. Because what's her response? She goes to the servants and goes, do whatever he tells you. Do whatever he says. And then she kind of... Right? So now we've got to understand something even a little more practical. The, the jars that we're talking about. Explicitly, we know how big they are. We know what they're made of. And archaeologists have found these things. So we know. Empty, these things probably weigh 100 pounds. They're not made of ceramic. They're stone. You fill them up with 20 to 30 gallons of water at 8.34 pounds per gallon. You got a 250, 300 pound thing here. So a lot of people think when Jesus says fill them up, that they're taking these empty jars, going to a... Like they're not doing that. They've got a smaller container. They're going to get water and they're filling it back up. This also should remind us of something. They were probably not completely empty, which means they were already partially full of water that had already been being used for what? Hand washing. This is not drinking water. This is dirty dishwater. This is dirty dishwater that's already been used. Now they've added some fresh water to it, but everyone knows that's why it's there to wash your hands in it. So this is the joke. See, only Mary, maybe the disciples, we don't know for sure, and we know explicitly that the servants know what's happening. Jesus has said to them, hey, okay, I want you to take this cup, fill it with dirty dishwater, and then I want you to calmly walk over to the master of the banquet and have him drink it. <laughs> Do it. So here's... Here you go. And this guy guzzles it. He, he doesn't just go... He goes... Blub, 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 and the servants are going... Ah, this guy's drinking. And then the joke's not over because then he calls the bridegroom over, right? Who has no idea what's going on. And he says, man, you brought out the good wine. You must have a lot of money I don't know about. And you're really generous. And the bridegroom's got to go, well, yeah, yeah, that's exactly what I did. Sure. And who's watching this? Jesus and the servants are all going, <coughs> and Mary, and they're like, <coughs> the whole time. 
This, you get, put it in a sitcom, Three's Company or the, the Happy Days. That dates me. You know, uh, Big Bang Theory or something. This isn't, you can't write this. I mean, this is a script from a, this is comedy. It's funny and super heavy too. It's foreshadowing the wedding banquet one day where Jesus will be the groom. It's foreshadowing the Last Supper and the role of wine representing spilled blood. There is a lot going on here. But we miss the fact that all of this cosmic weightiness was delivered with joy, with mirth, with whimsy. You know, Jesus could have lifted his hands to heaven like Moses and added a lot of reverb to his voice and said, In the name of me, let this hootenanny continue to be totally lit. <laughs> and, then, and then lightning could have struck the center of the party and a fountain at 30 feet high of wine come out in a neon sign that says, Jesus of Nazareth. And then the EDM music drops, the big bass drop. Do, 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 do. Boom, 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 boom. Wine forever. Why didn't he do that? That gets applause. I'll tell you why he didn't do that. Instead, he, this is what he does instead of that or something else. He performs a little miraculous inside practical joke for less than 10 people. And that story persists all the way to us today. We're in on it now for one reason. That we can know his joyfulness. Joy. Jesus parties. There's another episode in John's Gospel and that uh, John Eldridge in his book, he describes it as delicious. And you saw it represented here in our little skit, but let's read it now. John chapter 21. So we read this story from the beginning of John chapter 2. Now we're going to see another funny story at the end of John chapter 21, verses 1 through 12. John 21, 1 through 12. Afterward, Jesus appeared again to his disciples by the Sea of Galilee. It happened this way. Simon Peter, Thomas, also known as Didymus, Nathaniel from Cana in Galilee, the sons of Zebedee, and two other disciples were together. I'm going out to fish, Simon Peter told them. And they said, we'll go with you. So they went out and got into the boat. But that night, they caught nothing. Early in the morning, Jesus stood on the shore. But the disciples did not realize that it was Jesus. He called out to them, Friends, have you caught any fish? No, they answered. He said, Throw your net on the other side of the boat and you'll find some. When they did, they were unable to haul the net in because of the large number of fish. Then the disciple whom Jesus loved said to Peter, It's the Lord! As soon as Simon Peter heard him say it's the Lord, he wrapped his outer garment around him, for he had taken it off, and jumped into the water. The other disciples followed in the boat, towing the net full of fish, for they were not far from shore, about 100 yards. When they landed, they saw a fire of burning coals there with fish on it and some bread. Jesus said to them, Bring some of the fish you've just caught. So Simon Peter climbed back into the boat and dragged the net ashore. It was full of large fish, 153. But even with so many, the net was not torn. And Jesus said to them, Come, have breakfast. All right, so let's do this again. Context, context, context. We've always got to understand the context. So here are the disciples a week after the crucifixion, three days in the tomb, resurrection, and Jesus has appeared to them in Jerusalem. They've now walked 65 miles 
back up to Galilee, and they don't know what to do. They're, they're kind of bumbling around. The universe has just changed, but I'm not sure what I'm supposed to do next. Peter, above all, has not been reconciled yet to Jesus. He just betrayed him three times, and they haven't had words yet. He's still struggling under this. So what do fishermen do when they're feeling depressed? I'm going to go fishing. They're confused and not sure what to do. And the other hand, all right, well, I'll go fishing with you too. So out they go. And Jesus appears again. You know, he could have had the EDM thing and all that other stuff. Boom! But instead, he just shows up on the shore, just nice and quietly. And what does he do? What do fishermen say to other fishermen when you meet each other? Catch anything? No. They had fished all night and gotten skunked. This is the mood. Now, why would you be fishing all night in Galilee? Well, these are net fishermen. They're not out there with a sage, number seven. You know, they're out there with a net working for a living. Well, they didn't have monofilament line back in first century Palestine. They, had, they made their nets out of twine. And if you threw them out in the full sun of the daylight, guess what fish do? They see it and go right around the net. But you put it out at night, now you can catch fish. So all fishermen at that time fished at night. So this is why it's a miraculous catch that in the middle of daylight, they throw the net on the other side and they rake in 153 fish. That's why it's absolutely miraculous. And this is where the punchline comes in. Because they throw the net onto the other side and after the, now they realize it's him. Why? Because this is how they met him the first time. Luke chapter 5. He said to them, this was three years earlier, hey, throw your net on the other side of the boat. And they caught a miraculous catch of fish in the daylight. So it was in that moment that they realized, now why is this funny? Well, we'll look at this picture. I'll explain it to you. This is me and three other AC3 criminals, um, Peter and James and JT, about, I think it's 11 years now. <sighs> we got to get out more. Uh, and we're up uh, near the peak of Sahali Mountain in the North Cascades. Up, what is that, about 7,800 7, feet, something like a beautiful spot. And we camped there that night, but it was a haul getting up there. We were tired. And, you know, you're out for a couple of days, and anything like this, you get tired, you get punchy, and everything becomes funny, right? <laughs> when you, you work an overtime shift or you've hiked, whatever, everything becomes hilarious. Well, this mountain goat wouldn't leave us alone. This mountain goat is in our camp all over the place, and we decided we were going to name him William E. Goat. That was his full name. Instead of Billy Goat, William E. Goat. Get it? It's hilarious. Well, on top of it, what made it doubly funny was somehow we decided that he had a flamboyant French accent as well. I don't know why, but we decided, he is William E. Goat and I'm here to make your day. And so whenever the goat was around, like, oh, there is William E. Goat. And so here's the thing. 11 years later, all I have to do is walk past Peter or James or JT and go, ha, ha, ha. <laughs> And guess what? They know we were there with the goat. Remember the goat? Yeah, the goat, right? You've all got stories like that. And some of them point back to very meaningful moments. Friends, the creator of the universe chose, the risen Lord chose to introduce himself to his friends with a joke. Hey! <laughs> Throw your net on the other side. <laughs> it's Jesus! Do you get it? Do you get it? This is the risen Lord. If Jesus were a killjoy, what is the purpose of appearing to his disciples like this? This kind of lightheartedness is deeply intimate. 
William E. Goat will go to our graves with us. One of us will tell this story at the other one's funeral. And I will not make predictions on who that's going to be in what order. You see, we can look at the same events and laugh together. And when we see the humor in something or share a joke, it means that we have connected emotionally over an idea. Think about that. To share an emotional experience with someone through an idea. God went out of his way to do this with everyday people and he goes out of his way to do it now. I hope you've seen it here at AC3 at times. It's why we use humor so often. It exposes truth while it builds relationship. Music and other art do the same thing. It helps us connect through a shared emotional experience. Shared joy creates a bond of trust. And truth is transmitted through those bonds of trust. It's hard not to trust people you've laughed with. Jesus regularly used clever and humorous language to convey truth and create that joyous bond that only humor can. In Matthew 23, for example, Jesus is dressing down the religious legalists and says, you blind guides, you strain out a gnat but swallow a camel. Well, that's funny on three levels. (laughs) First, it's ludicrous. Just picture someone trying to swallow a camel. It's also ludicrous that they would be more worried about a gnat. And that's Jesus' whole point, right? Second, he's hitting the Jewish legalists right where it hurts. Because the gnat is the smallest unclean food that's forbidden to Jews. It's right there in Leviticus. And the camel is the largest forbidden unclean animal right there in the law. He's using very specific examples to shame the Pharisees here. It would be the equivalent of us saying to a really rich banker, you know one of them bailout guys, hey, you're stepping over a dollar to get a nickel. Really specific. Third, there's a play on words that doesn't translate into English. Jesus was speaking Aramaic. And in that language, the word for camel is gamla. And the word for gnat is qualma. Gamla, qualma, gamla, qualma. It sounds funny. Think about some of the other sayings of Jesus. You can't see the speck in your brother's eye because of the plank in your own. The blind leading the blind. That's cruel, but it's funny. Or a camel going through the eye of a needle. Now, skeptics might point out that there's very little humor in Old Testament writings and the law and the prophets. It's inconsistent that Jesus should use humor so much when it wasn't used before. But when you see that it was the people who were stuck in that law, the religious bigots, who were so often the butt of his jokes, it makes more sense, not less. The whole purpose of the incarnation was to bridge the gap between God and man. A gap created by our rebellion. It was partially, temporarily in a way, closed by the law. But Jesus came to finish that bridge Because what was missing from it was the humanness, the flesh, the presence, the intimacy. The final stages of God's redemptive plan were launched through the presence of a perfect man. The plan would advance through his death, resurrection, and now hope for a return. But during his time on earth, it was this perfect life that added flesh to the bones of the law. It was the presence of God amongst us, God loving us perfectly. God grieving 
perfectly. And yes, expressing and feeling joy perfectly. Think of it. For the Christian, we can live in the secure knowledge that he faced all of the same testings we do, yet he did not sin. Hebrews 4, verse 15. That he wept. John eleven thirty five That he got angry. Mark 3, verse 5. That he pitied. Matthew chapter 9, verse 36. And that he rejoiced. Mark 10, verse 21. This can't be said of Allah or Zeus or the universe, but it's true of Jesus. So Christian, as you step into a world divided and angry with factions and protests and sides getting chosen up on every topic with people getting wound tighter and tighter tighter until some days it feels like you can't breathe without being offended or offending, we've got to be the people who follow Jesus into that mess with a little joy, with a little humor. You know, we can step out into that and honestly look back at Jesus and then look forward into the pinched, angry faces that we're confronted with, and we could say, hey, brother, sister, oh, breathe a little bit. Hey, have you heard the one about the camel and the needle? I read an article by uh, New York Times columnist Wesley Morris this week as I was preparing, and he, he used this really great phrase. He said, nowadays, all of our interactions, we really only have two choices. You either flatter or provoke. Flatter or provoke. You're either blowing smoke up somebody's skirt or you're just, I had my first ever Facebook interactions this week. How do you people do this? I mean, I have access to the AC3 Facebook page. And this wasn't a bad one. This wasn't rancorous or anything. But it's like, holy cow, it's just everything is wound so tight. Everything counts. Everything, oh my gosh. It's like, oh man. How about a little joy? How about a, woo, let's breathe. Let's calm down a little bit. Jesus reminds us that in the midst of all the crap, there are weddings. My little girl's getting married this week. <laughs> there are babies being born. There are babies being born. There's music to play. There's dancing to do. And springtime is almost here. Oh. Oh. Man, the daffodils are coming up. Are you hearing the bird song? You're hearing the, the red winged blackbirds? The, the males are out there looking for dates, man. <laughs> it's that time of year. So that's for us, church. Now, seeker, maybe you're skeptical about a, a God who seems cruel. Maybe you keep the God of the Bible at arm's length because you feel he's too rigid and detached. And I pray that you will really let Jesus. Speak for himself. And if you listen carefully, I predict that you will hear him in two ways. Number one, you will hear him say, I am the way, the truth, and the life. You continue to listen, and you will hear laughter. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, my King, my God, I thank you for weddings and for babies, for red-winged blackbirds, 
(laughs) for the wriggling worms in the compost pile, for the sound of music and children's laughter, for the sore muscles after a day of work, for all the things that bring joy. God, give us eyes to see and ears to hear. Thank you for the fingernails that we can get some dirt under, for the taste of an apple, for all the things that bring us joy that don't have to. You didn't have to do it this way, but you did. You gave us the sensory apparatus and a soul to connect with the rest of our creation, with each other, and there's nothing like it. We seek it. We sin to get more of it. Oh, but God, show us the way to simply follow you into greater depths of joy because this is who you are. And I pray this in the name of Jesus, the laughing one. Amen.